Hello, ladies and gents, boys and girls, what's going on? I hope everything is going swimmingly for you and yours. This is chapter 21 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. So welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. But seriously, I'm truly humbled that you listen. I pinch myself all the time when I think about people listening to this podcast, sharing it, supporting it in various ways. I mean it. Thank you so much. Before I introduce this week's guests, plural, a word from our sponsor, Scout Books. I want to tell you a bit about my friends at Scout Books in Portland, Oregon, a company that really does give a damn. They make custom pocket notebooks for your brand, business, event, or anything else you might want a sweet notebook for. But what really makes Scout Books unique is that they make all their books with 100% recycled paper and they run their shop off of renewable energy. Scout Books also sponsors projects that benefit organizations doing good like the ACLU and the National Forest Foundation. They recently launched a book called We the People Are Powerful, a field guide to getting active in local politics, which is a place where individual action can really make a difference. So if you, the Let's Give a Damn listener, want to make a guide for taking action in your own community or create a fundraiser giveaway or just check out some well-made notebooks, Scout Books is offering 15% off anything in their store. Go check out the following links to get 15% off Scout Books. That's scoutbooks.com slash give a damn. Again, that's scoutbooks.com slash give a damn to get 15% off anything and everything in their store. Now, back to introducing the show. This week's podcast chapter has an interesting and beautiful backstory, and I'll try to keep it brief. This week, I'm chatting with three beautiful humans, not one. Fair warning, it's going to be a little longer than normal, so pace yourself, grab a drink, kick back your chair, and let's do this. The idea for this episode began almost a year ago when I met Melissa Orozco from Yulu PR, who was on chapter 14 of the podcast, actually. She runs a social media impact PR agency in Vancouver, British Columbia. We've kept in touch. We've found several ways to work together. And for this episode, we've partnered with Red Bull and their Amapico program to bring this episode to you. Amapico is a platform Red Bull is building for social entrepreneurs. Red Bull Amapico promotes and uplifts people making a change in their communities, helps connecting with others, and shares inspirational and stories about social change. Check out amapico.redbull.com to learn more about the incredible work they're doing. That's amapico.redbull.com. This episode is all about change makers in the great city of Baltimore, Maryland, and I can't wait to share it with you. I spent a few hours there a couple weeks ago, and I had these amazing conversations with these incredible people. So here is number one. My first conversation is with David Fakunle, servant of the people of Baltimore. That's what's written on his LinkedIn. That is not something he just says about himself. That is truly what his life is about. You'll hear from his story that this is truly who he is. My time with David was amazing, and I can't wait for you to hear our chat. No more waiting. Here we go. Pretty warm out there, dude. Yeah, I've been out there all day, man. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah. 
This came from a street fair uh, happening at the National Great Blacks and Whites Museum, which is right down North Avenue, the other way towards the east side. Okay. So been there from 10 to ended at 4, helped break it down. All that kind so of you, stuff. this was an event that you were a part of. Yeah, well, okay. my mom is the, uh, she was the one, the main coordinator, the main, uh, yeah, coordinator of the street fair. This is an idea that she came up with. Uh, so it started last year. Okay. And just a way to bring attention to East Baltimore, honestly. Okay. So you know, there's plenty of fairs and festivals and things like that. We don't get a lot on the East Side, sure. honestly. Sure. So you know, we have this institution, the National Great Blacks and Whites Museum, which is. Right in the east side, right in uh, a neighborhood that doesn't get a lot of attention, okay. uh, doesn't get a lot of appreciation, honestly. So this was just a way to bring attention to this neighborhood and bring attention to the institution that chooses to remain in that neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned your mom. Mm -hmm. You obviously are have a good relationship with her. You have you have a relationship with her. I have a good uh, I have a good relationship with her. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so let's talk about your let's let's uh, bounce right off of that then and just. Uh, Tell me about, before we even get into who you are today and what you do and the kinds of ways that you're impacting Baltimore, mm -hmm. let's talk about the things that shaped you okay. to become that. I try to leave this open-ended, mm -hmm. but go back as far as you want to. Talk to me about childhood, family dynamic, good experiences, bad experiences, mm -hmm. just the things that shaped the David that I'm sitting in front of today in this chair. Okay. So the museum that I mentioned was integral in shaping me to who I am. So... The National Great Blacks and Wax Museum uh, was the first, and I think it's still the only wax museum that's exclusively dedicated to black history. Okay. Uh, telling the true history of Africans and the African diaspora, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And learning the true history of myself and my people, particularly as it relates to this country, was the most crucial education I could have ever received because it gave me a knowledge of self that prepared me to deal with a white society. Okay. Um, and it's not that any aspect of society has been adversarial to me, but it's easy to be swallowed up in the, the monster of this culture and to lose yourself when the depictions of people who look like me are anything but positive. Sure. We get no benefit of the doubt in this country. So if that was all I knew about myself, I wouldn't be who I am. But I was uh, really empowered. That's really the optimal okay. word. Empowered with knowledge and understanding and wisdom about what it truly means to be black. And that has carried me to where I am. Um, my parents, of course, and, and they uh, encouraged that as well. So education was very important in my family. Both my parents have master's degrees. So that only left me and my sister with two choices. Get a PhD or get a medical degree. So I'm getting a PhD and my sister's getting a medical degree. <laughs> Amazing. That's how that turned out. So education was very important. Uh, it was always seen as the way out. I mean, we were middle class, so I'm not going to, and I'm very honest about my upbringing. Sure. I never lacked for anything. I didn't get everything I wanted, right. but I never lacked. Same. So, but education was still seen as the way out. And mm -hmm. I think my parents exemplified that. So I'm pretty sure my mother was definitely one of the first in her family to go to college and get a degree. My father immigrated to the United States from Nigeria for an education. Mm -hmm. So education clearly very important and they instilled that in us. Um, but also cultural education. So not just academics, but cultural education, physical education, uh, artistic education. So we really had a holistic educational upbringing 
as me and my sister as kids. And that allowed us to be as holistic as we are, even though we have our disciplines, to have a holistic perspective and a holistic approach to what we do. So those things have definitely shaped me and just all the people and all the institutions just along the way. Uh, it's been nothing but support. So even when I started to be in more predominantly white spaces, uh, starting with middle school, I still got support there. So I, I give a lot of props to my middle and high school friend school of Baltimore uh, for being a predominantly white institution, an elite you know, independent institution, but still allow me to be myself and embracing who I was as one of the few black kids in my in my class, but allowing me to express my African culture, my African-American culture, just allow me to be me and to grow uh, within that space and not have to assimilate, honestly, uh, to whatever standards they may they may have. So that was really crucial for me, because I think if it had gone differently, that would have stunted all the growth that I was bringing to that point in my life. But instead of it being stunted, it was appreciated and it was acknowledged. So it really strengthened everything I learned. So, you know, as I progressed from there to, you know, to college and now to grad school, people can't tell me anything. Like, I know who I am. I know what I stand for. And I know exactly why I'm doing the things that I do. Was there ever a time in your life where the the history this country has with black people and the way that they still treat them in a lot of ways and in a lot of places. Was there ever a time, because you, you mentioned that you used it to empower you, right? Was there ever a time where it didn't empower you, but embittered you? Or did you go straight to, it empowered me to want to learn and become wiser in these things and pursue, you know, bigger and better things? Or was there a time that you were like, just, it just put you in a bad place that could have sent you down a different path entirely? Not so much about being black, but just who I was as an individual. Okay. So I think for a certain portion of my teenage years, and you know, you have teenage angst, so that that happens. But for me, I I had that identity crisis. So I think my identity crisis came early (laughs) in life. Uh, Really being comfortable with who I am, being comfortable for expressing myself the ways that I do. So I was that stereotypical angry black kid in like high school. Like I was. So, you know, I, I'll be honest about the situation. Uh, so there was teenage angst. My parents were going through a divorce. Uh, that was really rough. Um, and I think if there was any point where I felt I felt like the black kid, it was a few years in high school. Not so much that anyone was alienating me. I think I was alienating myself um, hmm. more than anything else. And I really was. And, and even some of the teachers picked up on it. It was, it was I had a conversation with my vice principal. And she just kind of like cut through, you know, the little meme mug and stuff I wanted to do. And I ended up breaking down crying in her office. So she could tell that there was something going on that was really a burden on my spirit. And I think it was that point where I was encouraged to really be open about my feelings. And just to be kind of honest with myself, just, hey, I come from East Baltimore uh, I, I I love East Baltimore. I rep it, but a lot of the things that people associate with East Baltimore were not my experience, mm. and I wasn't gonna lie about that anymore. Uh, I was gonna be very comfortable uh, with the life and expressing the life that I live, the opportunities that I have, but also using those opportunities for a greater purpose because I realized how fortunate and blessed I was. So I've always been comfortable with my blackness. Uh, my blackness has never 
been under attack. It must be an aura type deal because it's not like I'm saying I'm black, come at me. It's just right. I am who I am. Yeah, sure. And people it's like, okay, I respect that. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it alone. So if they have any issue with it, they don't tell me. The issue was more with who David is, you know, outside of race, outside of, you know, sex, gender, outside of, you know, all those things. It was just, am I comfortable with who I am? And that took a while. And even that's still a process. And that's just part of the human experiences, truly being comfortable with yourself, especially as you change, especially as, as you grow, as you mature, as your environment is, you know, uh, are altered, things like that. Got it. You are the policy, community engagement, and outreach fellow at the Baltimore City Health Department. I for, was, yeah. Was? I was. Okay. So that ended the end of May Okay. Uh, for funding issues. Okay. <laughs> but that's well, fine. It was a good experience, though. Okay. So, I mean, I still have a relationship with them. I'm still working on uh, a major initiative with them kind of in my own capacity because I believe in it so much. And honestly, I just don't want them to screw it up. So sure. until they find somebody who I, I trust is not going to screw it up, I'm going to keep having my, my imprint on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long were you there and what did that work entail and what did that teach you about yourself, about Baltimore? So it, it started in August of 2016, uh, went to the end of May of this year. It honestly, at the beginning, it was a little bit of, uh, and I say too much of clerical work. Okay. Quickly got past that because they realized that was not my deal. Sure. Um, got more into community outreach and really community empowerment. So really finding ways to get the community as really as a part of the decision-making process with the health department. I think one of the good conversations I had with Dr. Wynn, the health commissioner, was that everybody's a part of the health department. All 620 plus thousand people in the mm-hmm. city of Baltimore are part of the health department. Mm-hmm. She really dig that. Uh, we'll see if that's a low, you know, like a catchphrase at some point. Uh, <laughs> I let them have that. That was a freebie. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> uh, with the policy, it was really going over those policies that affected the public health of Baltimore and whether or not it was aligned with what the health department was looking to do. You know, we had our input, but ultimately that was at the mercy of the, of the commissioner. She's the head honcho. It, the buck stops with her. So sure. if she don't like it. That's pretty much the end of it. Yeah. So it was really, where do we stand on it? How, is it beneficial to the department? Is it beneficial to the public health of Baltimore? A lot of stuff around opioids, which is the unfortunately the hot thing right now. Yeah, that benefits Baltimore because now it's a statewide and really a nationwide uh, epidemic. And let's be real, the only reason it is is because white people are dying now. So neither here nor there. <laughs> and we know that. I mean, in Baltimore, we, we know that. Like Opioids have been a problem in the city for... For decades. Yeah. But as long as it was happening in the black part of Maryland, it was all right. Now that it's happening in the suburbs, it's a problem. Neither here nor there. We only got 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> we'll, we'll do a two-hour one later. Right. <laughs> but um, the, the biggest uh, initiative that I worked on and the one I'm still working on is a citywide trauma initiative. So Baltimore is a violent city. It's even more violent now than it has been for a number of reasons. Mm. Again, only 20 minutes. We can get into that later. But people are dying at, at a record pace in this city. This is not a big city, but the pace that, in which people are dying in this city dwarfs Chicago, or dwarfs New York. Mm. You know, Because we're only 620,000 people. We, we have hundreds of murders. What people are slowly starting to acknowledge and appreciate is the trauma that people have suffered and are suffering in this city. So we can start with the history of Baltimore. Baltimore is the archetype for hypersegregation. 
So Chicago, you know, with its separation between north side and south side, they learned that from Baltimore. Hmm. You still see the ramifications almost as if it hasn't changed in a hundred years. The city looks the same way from a structural level now the way it looked then, where blacks are in certain areas and whites are in other areas. And then you just kind of have the, the gentrification moving into another area, pushing the, you know, the lower income, which typically is black and brown, out. Those are traumatic experiences. So that's tra- trauma on a structural level, on a systemic level. Then you have the traumas of poverty. You have the traumas of abuse. You have the traumas of lack of proper mental health. You have the traumas of racism. You have the traumas of... So all those things are burdens that everyone's experiencing and certain people experiencing more. The ramifications and the residuals of which, one is violence. I mean, it's, it's, it's so cut and dry. It's, it is that straightforward in a lot of ways. It's a lot of moving pieces. We can talk about drug use. We can talk about drug trade. Well, why are people doing that? There's no other jobs available. <laughs> There's mm. no other opportunity for economic sustainability. So if I can't get a job with a livable wage, well, if I know I can hustle rocks, if I know I can sell weed, I can sell Molly and Percocet and make way more money than I would make at a McDonald's or any other institution, the ones that would even hire me, then that's what I'm going to do. So the one thing I say is that people are making bad decisions, but they're only given bad choices mm. or, or detrimental. I won't even say bad, detrimental choices. So they're making detrimental decisions. And those detrimental decisions are affecting not only themselves, but their families, their friends, random people. So if we start to address the many traumas in which people are living in this city, violence, which is a residual, will go down. But we have to do it in a holistic way. So what I was doing at the health department was starting to become aware of all the entities around the city, whether it's at an institutional level, you know, at the university level, or just community organizations that are addressing different manifestations of trauma, making them aware that the health department wanted to have a citywide initiative and really create a network among those entities so that they are communicating with each other, they are collaborating with each other. And when we have these entrance points in different neighborhoods or around the city where we can see that people are dealing with trauma, we know exactly where we can take them where to where we can refer them to start getting the healing that they need. Hmm. That's fascinating. You're getting a doctorate. You mentioned it before. What does that look like? It's going to be obvious what you plan on using it for just from the, 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 the work that you're doing in it, the research you're doing, but like, what, what's the plan for it? What's the future for it? The one thing I say about any type of terminal degree, especially with PhDs, MDs are pretty straightforward. You're an MD, sure. you go into medicine for the most part. With PhDs, what it really does is provides a lot of flexibility. It really tells people to shut up. I'm a doctor, that type of deal. Sure. But if you use it for the right reasons, it uh, allows you to have an integral part in important conversations. Yeah. So for me, I think my immediate plan uh, as it is currently structured uh, will be to do a postdoctoral fellowship at Morgan State University. Um, and that's very special to me. My parents went to Morgan. I'm nine times out of 10 convinced I was conceived at Morgan State University. <laughs> you know, my godparents, my, my late godfather was a professor of social work in Morgan State. So it's been an integral part of my family. So being able to continue my studies there is, is pretty is pretty special. But using the skills that I've acquired as a public health researcher to really start encouraging 
these honest conversations that we need to have about the systems in place, particularly in Baltimore. I, I'm a Baltimore-oriented researcher. Everyone knows this. I'm in Baltimore for the rest of my life by choice because I want to be a part of the revitalization, the equitable revitalization of the city. Hmm. One of the ways I can do that is through research and using science uh, to have the honest conversations that we need to have with the power bases uh, in this city about the structures that they are allowing to uh, perpetuate disadvantage, trauma, uh, so many of the isms that are are creating these just inescapable burdens for a large majority of the population here. That's kind of the immediate thing under the research side. Yeah, I love the I love how the language you used about choosing to stay here, right, or mm -hmm. choosing to remain here, because some people, most people, uh, don't ever get out and do anything else. But it is not for the reasons you're talking about. It's laziness. It's just no ambition, right? right. Yours is the opposite. Yeah. Lots of ambition mm -hmm. and lots and lots of reasons to get the hell out of here too. Oh, yeah, right. Absolutely. Like you talked about the murders. You talked about that. This is. This is a, uh, it seems like it's a fascinating city with a really crazy history, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you have every reason to get out to a, um, I don't know if this is the, right, the correct word, so I might regret it in a second, but a safer in all. That, in is, all, the, that in, is the correct in, word. In, in, in a lot of different ways, Absolutely. not just not just crime, but just mm -hmm. like it's, there's, there's safer environments to raise a family Absolutely. to be you, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet you've chosen to remain here. Yep. And that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So why Baltimore? It's my home. Okay. Uh, it's my home. It is the other thing I say. Number one is my home. I love it here. There is a a je ne sais quoi about Baltimore that I just love. Yeah. And there are some other cities that give me that vibe. Detroit and New Orleans specifically. Sure. But that makes sense. There is something about this city mm -hmm. I just love, and I don't want to be anywhere else. My family is here. My friends are here. Hey, I'll be honest. I built a great reputation here. Sure. Why go anywhere else? Yeah. <laughs> um, but on a greater purpose, a, a deeper purpose, this city is a microcosm of this country. Hmm. It really, really is. And to me, any of the challenges in this city, we're seeing it on a national level. Therefore, any of the solutions that we can implement in this city can be implemented on a national level. So to me, this is the ultimate. It's kind of a testing ground. It's the ultimate testing ground. When we talk about systems of oppression in the United States of America, Baltimore is the microcosm of it. So if you can come up with solutions that work in this city, you have come up with solutions that can work for this country. I hope that I am fortunate to have enough years in my life to at least put pieces in place to start putting some of those solutions uh, to the test and to see them implemented so that once it has been shown that it is an effective solution, an effective strategy, we're just upscaling to address the issues of the country. I hope you have all the time in the world to do that because that, so that seems too. like, you know, really important work. No, and it, and it starts small and that's yeah, fine. Totally. It starts small and it starts with building trust. So I know that it's easier for people to have trust in me when I say I'm from this city. Yeah. This, we have a, a what's, the, what's the right term? Not an inferiority complex, but we're very protective of our city. So it's almost like your little brother. You know, you may crap on your little brother all the time, but as soon as somebody else does it, there's a problem. Mm. Same thing about Baltimore. Same. We'll yeah. crap on the city till kingdom yeah. come. Yeah, but, but as soon don't. as somebody else does it, you got we That's got right. a problem. Stay the hell don't away. talk about my city. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we are very protective of our city, even with all the talent, and it has a bunch of them. 
So to me, establishing trust with the community is very important. We need the people. We need the people, and, and I want the people to feel empowered. So one of the things, the only silver lining I'm taking out of this current political climate, mm. the only one, is that people are being empowered. Sure. It takes somebody yep. as just completely inept yep. as, as who we have, I won't even name them, sure. as who we have uh, at the top of the executive branch to say, you know what, enough is enough, and to realize the kind of power that the people, yes, the people actually have. So, yeah, there are a lot of terrible things that they want to do. There are a lot of terrible things that they've already done. But there are a lot of things that have already been stopped because the people said, no, yeah, nah, not happening. So utilizing and harnessing that power that they are realizing that they've always had uh, sure, to right. address things on the local level and the state level. Because, yeah, the federal, yeah, of course, it's the federal government, but things really happen on the local yeah. level. I mean, you can have cities thrive even in the midst yep. of the chaos in, in Washington. Absolutely. So if you realize the effects that you can have in your in your city, in your town, your county, your state, do that. Yeah. And, and that's what I want to be a part of. So establishing trust with community, utilizing my resources, my prestige, and I put it in quotations because a PhD is just three letters, man. Like, sure. It's yeah. just a piece right. of paper. What is it? I'm like, there are idiots with PhDs. So to me, like, very true. So it's like it's what you do with that prestige right. that's most important. Right. So utilizing that prestige to have the honest conversations in spaces where they would never have those conversations is what I want to do. But not just say you're screwing up here, you're screwing up there. But it's like this is what we can do to actually solve these problems and encouraging them and showing them and showing them there is a benefit to you too. There's a benefit whether it's economically, whether it's politically, whether hey. We can play the game. If you want to do that, fine. What's in it for you? Let me tell you what's in it for you. And then it's also benefiting the people as well. So for me, it's really being, and I call myself a mercenary for change. Um, mm. And I say that because, yeah, one, typically, you have to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> but two, yeah. I, you'll find me anywhere. Sure. You know? So I have the ability to work in government. I have the ability to work in, in academia. I have the ability to work in art and culture and community. I've been afforded those opportunities and, yeah. and those abilities to navigate seamlessly. Yeah. So even as a you know, six foot, 260 pound black man with locks and a beard, for those who can't see me, um, I don't look out of place sure. in those spaces. Yep. Even though by all estimates, you can hold your I own. should. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I hold, you know, but yeah, I hold my own. I am right in place in those spaces. And I bring this honesty and truth uh, to those spaces, but I do it in a way that is appreciative and acknowledging of people's perspectives. So the one thing that uh, frustrates me, and I get it, I absolutely get it, we have to approach the division that we see in, in this country with a level of understanding. Can I understand why a lower income rural person in Kentucky votes for a guy like him? Yeah, I kind of can. Mm. Um, does part of me want to say, ha ha, I told you so with all the things that are going to happen because he does not have that back at any point? Yes, yeah. I do. But that is an opportunity to mm. say, you know what? There are there are people that can be put in place that can look out for your interests and my interests, yep. even though we don't have the same experience. Yep. And you are not that far away from being black as you may think you are. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But it takes it takes discipline and it takes a spirit of understanding to do that because that is hard. These are the see it's not and not all of them, but these are the same people that wouldn't spit in your direction because of the misperceptions that they have about people that look like me or people uh, who are of a different a different life than them so to show them compassion to show understanding 
uh, is difficult, but it's in those moments that you can create the biggest allies. Yeah. That's the one thing I've learned. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you don't agree with me? Well, bump you then. Right. No, no, no. I'm willing to grow with you. I'm willing to introduce you to a reality that you've never been exposed to. And that's usually what it is. Um, and then if you do it in a way that, again, is acknowledging of their experience and acknowledging of their perspective, they'll get it. I mean, most people get it if they're given the opportunity to get it. Yeah, it has you know to be I mean? a much more um, has to be a much more humble conversation that takes place because it can it can fall apart very quickly as it does every day on twitter and facebook exactly. and everywhere and in person because we we lack what you just we lack this empathy we lack this trying to understand what they're going through and realizing that they're a real person with real experiences real heart real soul and yeah and we're all seeking the same things at the end of the day right and i think when those things are acknowledged yeah we can all sit around with you know some food and some beers and just hash it out oh, and end up closer together by the end of the night or the end of our time together. I love that. You and I are here partly because of, or actually mostly because of, uh, of our relationship with Red Bull Amapico. Mm -hmm. And they're here in Baltimore, yep. uh, platform empowering social entrepreneurs. What is your role with them? And how do you see um, your role with them and just their presence here empowering the social entrepreneur, just the social change aspect of Baltimore? Mm -hmm. So... My role has been, uh, I, I like to kind of coin it as maybe a consultant, uh, an advisor. You know, the one thing I appreciated about the, the team of, of Red Bull when they came into the city is they knew that they didn't know. Mm, that's so, important. Mm -hmm, exactly. That, that's, Especially from a huge brand like that, right? That's totally. humility. Like yeah. we just talked about, that is humility to say, we don't know. So they uh, came to Impact Hub. They, they uh, were connected to people in social entrepreneurship or social change. Uh, and those connections made other connections. That's how I came about. And the way that uh, I have worked with them is just letting them know, hey, this is what's going on in the city. These are people that would be uh, beneficial to your cause and you would be beneficial mm. to their cause. So really just being a connector is, sure. is what I've done. I've also done uh, workshops. Uh, I've done some in Baltimore, some in, in D.C. Uh, I did one in New Orleans. Uh leading workshops around storytelling and being able to tell the story of you, uh, the individual, you, the organization, as it relates to your social change initiative, whatever the case may be. Uh, helping people to harness and understand the power of the story. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, like, like you and I were just discussing, when we're talking about people uh, who seemingly don't have the same experience, but there's so much commonality, mm. I will argue to the depth that the story is the best way to really show that common 100%. ground. People will extract the same values, similar, at least similar values, similar virtues, similar perspectives on that universal level, regardless of where they are or what they do or, or what their life uh, trajectory has been. I love that about storytelling. So I think when it comes to the social change space, People need to utilize that more. And so the workshops that I've done is help people realize, hey, man, your story is as powerful uh, a weapon in your arsenal as any other thing you you bring uh, to the social change space. So that's been my role with them. I love it. I love it. As we wrap up, I have a hypothetical question for All you. Right. The scene is someday when you die, which will hopefully be many, many, many years from <laughs> I'm now. Bro, I'm hoping it will too. <laughs> um, all the people you've impacted are in the room. 
family, friends, people you've worked with, worked for, worked over. Like everybody's there. Everybody is oh, there to good, honor your life. That'd be a good dub. <laughs> and for some odd reason, I'm giving your eulogy. Mm. I am speaking your legacy over these people as they, you know, come to honor your life. What do you hope that I'll say on that day? That David Olawoyifakonle loved his people. That's it. I hope that my life is a manifestation of love no matter what I've done. This is an interesting hypothetical. Mm. I, I, I shouldn't be thinking about death as much as I do, being 30 years old, but I do. Mm. Uh, just because I, I appreciate the fragility of life. 100%. It can go away at any point. And yep. I, I don't know when I'm going to die. So yeah. I, I I don't necessarily live my life like it's the last because I'd be doing a lot <laughs> less productive things. Sure, totally. Yeah. But I, I, I live life with an understanding that it could end at it any point. It could end at any, any point. So I, I want people to know, starting with my family, that I love them. Uh, I want people that I've worked with in the arts and culture and academia, government, I love them. I want random strangers that I've only met mm. for a few seconds to know that I love them. Uh, I want <laughs> the people of Baltimore to know I, that I love them. Um, anyone that I've had the opportunity to uh, encounter in my life, I love them. That's it. My, my life is a manifestation of love. It may be as simple as a hello. It may be as big as dismantling institutional racism, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all done out of love. There is a, a universal love for humanity that I do my best. I'm not perfect, uh, but I do my best to exude every single day mm. with the smallest action or the biggest action. Mm. So... You know, at that point when I transition, you know, uh, at my celebration, because I don't want to have a funeral. I'm, I want to go Viking. Party. I want to go Viking style. There you go. That's right. <laughs> and just celebrate. That's you right. Know? But I want people to know, man, that guy loved. He loved. And if they say just those words, I'm good. I love that. That's a good legacy. Whether you or the listeners are religious or not, the Apostle Paul said that without love, you're just a noisy just a oh, just a noisy. It's just this over and over again because you can be smart, you can have your PhD, you can be successful, but if you don't have love, it's all for naught. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, and, and you know, I'm not the most religious person anymore. I, I'm still connected to God. I, I'm still connected to the Christian values that shaped hmm. my experience. But I, I look at it on a spiritual level. I don't really worry too much about the the doctrine anymore because that was man made. So there's so much. Flawed, you know, I won't get into that. 20 minutes <laughs> again, we need two more. Oh, two, my God, yeah, we need two days <laughs> on that one. But I will say that whether you believe in uh, a supreme being by whichever name you choose to call that supreme being, or you just believe in the universe, you believe in humanity, to me, love is still that universal spirit, that universal uh, energy that we all possess. Mm. To me, that transcends religion and transcends. Uh, doctrine that just to me that is that is something that we're all capable of exuding in so many ways there is no one way to love there are infinite ways to love mm. and to me that's all I would want my kids to do my fiance soon to be wife to do anybody mm. I don't care who you are I don't care if I never see you again exude love as only you mm. can and to me you've done what you were meant to do. Yeah. Whether you believe that there's a greater purpose, whether you think we're just stardust that eventually expires at some point, you can leave an impact. For sure. <laughs> you can leave an impact 
on this world. You For can sure. create a legacy of love. That's huge, man. Yeah. That that creates purpose, whether yeah. you believe it or not. That is purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Well, Thank well, you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This man. was this was super fun, and I hope we can do it again for. Oh. What are we up to? Like ten more hours that we need, or two, two more so days? So we got to cover. We got to cover the history of Baltimore. <laughs> we got to right. cover yeah. religion. <laughs> yeah. We'll do it again. Thanks so much for joining me. All right, man. Thank you so okay. much. Next up is my conversation with C. Harvey. She's an artist, a creative genius, and an agent of change in the city of Baltimore. I loved hearing her talk about her struggles, her victories, and even some of the things she is doubting right now in her life. It's a raw conversation with such a beautiful soul. I hope you enjoy my conversation with C. Harvey. Here it is. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having I'm, me. Yeah, I'm really excited that you're here doing this with me. Um, I'm excited to learn more about Baltimore through you and through some of your uh, friends and colleagues here in the city. Um, so first of all, let's start with how would you describe uh, what you do, not just in work, but in life? Like what, yeah, like what, what, when people ask you, hey, so see, what do you do? Um, what do you, what do you tell them? I'm very simplistic and minimal. I'm okay. not with the whole title thing. I just say either I'm a creative or an entrepreneur, and I pretty much leave it at that. Okay. Well, so so let's take both of those things. In the creative field, who are you? What kinds of things have you done? What are you involved in? So about seven years ago, I launched Generation of Dreamers, which is a contemporary streetwear brand. So through fashion design apparel, um, in that regard, I guess more recently, um, I'm now a bona fide artist. I have my own exhibition, another one coming up. So anything visual, visual and design, that's where my creative prowess comes in and like creative strategy from that end. That you mentioned generation of dreamers? Yes. What 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 uh, what is that in what does that entail? You see a clothing? Uh yeah, contemporary streetwear. Okay. So um I don't know if you remember like FUBU or oh, yeah. Starter or Carl Kanai or yep. Walkerwear or Nietzsche, but I kind of stayed to the traditional streetwear aesthetic of like the nostalgic 90s oh, yeah. hip hop uh, inspired. So that's what that is. Okay. And uh, so that's creative entrepreneur side? Yes. What, uh, what, what sorts of things are you involved in there? With the entrepreneur side? Yeah. Well, or, that, or are they all mixed together? Well, yeah, anything I do, I don't, I don't do anything just to make money. Sure. But I do things on such a grand scale that once I do it, it becomes a business, not just a project. So um, my grandmother's a seamstress, my mom's a seamstress, okay. my aunt's a master seamstress. So I'm just like that next generation of like a designer, seamstress, sewer type. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a full-fledged business. It's been featured in Japan, UK, Boston, LA. So it it at one point in time it was doing pretty good. That's kind of big time. It was. It kind was. Of big, yeah, it was kind of big time. <laughs> what what has kind of happened or changed? Um, twenty fourteen, I had a major hardship that really caused me to just have to stop doing mm. business completely. I was literally dirt poor, like poor. Mm. But um, I just relaunched it in L.A. at the bank sale this past June, so I'm revving back up. But I did take about a two, two and a half year hiatus just to get myself together as a human being, get my soul together and really figure out where I wanted to go with that brand and just my life in general. So you don't have to go into specifics, but I, I, I want to poke a little bit just because you, 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 know, you mentioned something and this will help people that sure. sometimes people can look at uh, people that are giving a damn through 
through creativity and through entrepreneurship and so on and so forth. And they can see it as they can, they see the sexy side of it. They see the, the, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And you said it was featured in Japan and UK and all over the US. They focus on that, but they don't understand that it's a hell of a lot of work. Right. And so, um, again, as little or as much as you want to get into it, what kind of happened there that created like the burnout or whatever it was? And then how did you, I'm more interested in how did you recover from that? Right. Because we're all going to, we all are prone to burnout or, or work gets us into a certain space where we can't work anymore. Like we can't do it anymore. And we have to like shut it down. But then the recovery process is incredibly important. So yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? So 2013, I had a lot of issues in my personal life I wasn't addressing, and he just kind of came to a head, um, including like mental illness, severe depression. In my mind, I thought if I just kept pushing with my business, Mm. I could just move to L.A. and then everything would clear up. And I just wasn't in my right mind. I wasn't thinking straight. Also, some slight drug abuse, and I'm okay talking about that Mm -hmm. too. But I just wasn't making smart decisions, the best decisions. I was just really rushing through life, just thinking I could just literally run from my problems, even though I knew that wasn't the case. Um, I got invited to my first trade show, which is a big deal. Usually you have to apply, but I got invited. So that was pretty big deal to me. But you need a couple, not even a couple grand, like tens of grands to properly execute a trade show. Totally. And I knew I wasn't prepared. But for me, that was my way to get out from whatever I was going through. So being unprepared, I put up every dime I had. I sold like half my sneaker collection, gave up my apartment, gave up my job. Because in my mind, I just knew I was going to go to L.A. and blow up. So I put all my money on the line. But I really, in reality, only had enough money for the actual trade show itself. I didn't really have money for the production. And I was so arrogant at the time. I thought my clothes are so unique and it's so bomb that um, these bigger corporate buyers will give me the money and be okay with waiting for their merchandise two to three weeks like the smaller guys were. Mm. And I was wrong because the smaller independent uh, store owners serve a niche market. So they can afford to give you five grand, 10 grand, and then wait two to three weeks. And I don't have to use, I don't, I don't have to have my own capital overhead. I'm using theirs. But with the corporate buyers, it's like, no, we're going to give it to you and you have to ship within two to three days. And I wasn't prepared for that. Sure. So I, the, people loved it, but I couldn't I couldn't uh, deliver in time. And I literally went home empty handed to a basement, middle of winter, no heat and a house with no stove, no kitchen sink. It's just bad. I want to get to the whole story. I've said it so many times. Sure. But it was just bad, 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 bad. And I was like literally so dirt poor. I couldn't move. My best friend had to bring me money to get on the bus just to go to job interviews, just to get a haircut. Mm. So I, I literally couldn't do business, and I almost quit. Um, some spiritual things happened. I don't really want to dive too deep into, but mm-hmm. pretty much I got a message like not to give up, and this this mm. was bigger than me. So I said, okay, I'm not going to give up, but I will be still. And I practiced stillness for a year where I didn't do any business. Um, I really didn't listen to any music too much. I didn't do any radio, no television, not too much internet, like literal stillness. And I just read and got to know myself. And in that process, what I really wanted to do with myself and my life, my business really came to me. But I also said, you know, I'm so talented, quote unquote. People always tell me I'm so gifted. I shouldn't be in this situation, but I'm here. I'm applying for jobs. I'm not getting calls back until I say I'm a white woman. Same exact mm. resume, same exact job. I just dropped my real name, which is Khadija, to a C, so you can't tell I'm black. And I just say I'm a white woman instead of a black woman. Now I'm getting calls back. It was wild. Mm. But um, I said someone like me, 
shouldn't be here. This doesn't make any sense. And I said, while I'm getting myself out of this basement, I have to figure out a way that, you know, other, I won't say kids, but youth people like me can kind of not have to be in a basement like this. And that's kind of how Baltimore's Gifted came about, Leashly. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks Thank for you. being vulnerable there for a minute. So I'm really glad that you, you know, said that Generation of Dreamers is coming back slowly but surely. What's the impetus, the mission, the vision behind? Like, I know it's clothing and you obviously, I've, I looked at it. It's it's very good, it's like Thank really you. cool. But like, what's the, I mean, it's Generation of Dreamers. It's not like just some random name or whatever. Like, it feels like there's something more behind it than sure. just clothes. For sure. Um, well, I came up with Generation Dreamers. We have to back up a little bit. I was living in Philadelphia, working at an engineering firm, like very, very young, I was 19. And that's when I learned racism for the first time. Like a lot of people, I don't know, maybe my childhood was different. I didn't have a traumatic childhood. So racism and stuff wasn't beaten to me. I really mm-hmm. didn't have to deal with racism until I got older in the corporate world. And unfortunately, I meant it face on at an engineering firm, very young by myself. When I got laid off, I just said like, I hate this feeling that I didn't do anything wrong. I'm actually pretty exceptional with my job, but just because I represent too much progress, people will make situations for me to get laid off. Mm. Um, I hated that feeling. That threw me into a depression, and I said, what can I do so that I'm never out of control of my life? And for me, I was like, the only way to do it is entrepreneurship and ownership, so I'm always creating my future. That's how I control it, but that's how the engineering firm kind of came about. Again, first first experience with like legit for real racism. I don't mean like a police officer pulling you over till you get out. Like that's small shit. I mean like this was mm. like my livelihood. Mm. Oh, because you just didn't like how I looked, how I dressed. Mm. You know, stupid shit like that. Yeah. So at that point, I said never again. I gotta own my own destiny. I gotta be a business owner. On top of that, I'm not to brag, but like I'm. I think I'm running circles around people that I used to have to work for. Mm. And it's like, I think I could do this better than you guys anyway. Mm. So, yeah. Generation Dreams is literally like, whatever your dream is, if you have the ability to dream it, then you literally have the ability to develop your skills to execute it. For sure. So that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to, um, as much or as little as you want to talk about it, let's go back to the kinds of things that, you've overcome a lot already. And I, we've been, I mean, we, we're not going deep here, but I can tell that, you know, we, you've overcome a lot already in your life. And so what made you that way? Talk, talk to me about your, your, you grew up here, correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yep. So you're Baltimore through and through. Yep. Um, tell me a little about your family, a little about your childhood, any experiences that shaped who you are today? Honestly, there's one experience that I haven't told publicly, not because it's a secret. I've just never known when to say it, but I'll say it now. Hmm. So when I moved to the neighborhood I grew up, which is literally right across the street from Morgan on Hill and Road, I was five turning six. And I, I've always been a tomboy. I didn't want to play with the girls. I didn't want to play Barbie dolls. All I wanted to do was play basketball. And all the boys were older and they would not let me play. And it got to the point where I had to interrupt their games constantly. And then finally, the, the, like the head leader or whatever his name was Jason, he said, if you want to play, you can play, but you got to fight first. And I said, cool, I'll fight. And I'm thinking I'll fight somebody my size. I was five going on six, and the, the boy he chose was 13. I got my ass whooped, ran oh in the gosh. house. Yeah. Oh. I ran in the house crying, went in the basement, pulled myself together. About 15 minutes, I went back out and said, let's do it again. 
I got my ass whipped again. Went in the house crying, and that was it for the day. But the next morning, I remember I woke up. They played bas- basketball again. I interrupted, and I said, I want to fight again. And I remember he just looked at me and said, like, you really want to play that bad? And I said, yes, I really want to play that bad. So he said, you still got to fight, but you can pick now. So I remember I didn't pick somebody my age, a little bit bigger, but not 13 years old. And right. he didn't beat me. I didn't go to the ground. He didn't get to the ground. And after that, I played basketball. So I think for me, that's kind of where, like, you just kind of can't deny me from anything comes from. Mm. Like, literally, I had to fight to just to play basketball. That's ridiculous. So that's kind of where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. That's that's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, obviously, that's playing out today. Like, that is kind of happening today with you bouncing back from, you know, this whole the trade show thing and then not having anything and then being aware enough to practice stillness for a year. I like that term and, and that idea because we don't do that enough. And then now kind of, you're kind of like in recovery mode and, you know, doing, doing a lot better. So why, why stay in Baltimore? I know you said you talked about trying, you know, potentially trying to do LA or whatever, but why, why Baltimore? There are other more, um, more creative, more progressive, more Absolutely. advanced cities. So, so, you know, we're here talking with three amazing people in Baltimore, um, you know, today on this show. And the, the question I want, because I've never lived here, I've spent a couple times here and I'm only here for five hours right now before continuing on. So I really want to know, like, what, what's, what's it about Baltimore? What do you see? What do you feel? What do you envision happening? Um, so both like past, present and future about Baltimore for you. I don't want to be pessimistic, but um, a friend of mine, Gaia, said he thinks Baltimore is on the verge of collapsing in on itself. Mm. And I, I do think he's correct. It just looks really pretty because you see new construction and shit like that. Mm-hmm. It's just covering up like the ugly shit. It's not. It's, I think it's illusion to me. But again, I don't want to be pessimistic. So like some Band-Aids maybe on open wounds kind of thing where it's like, yeah. oh, it's fixed, but yeah, not really. For me, um, I mean, I've been pretty transparent that Baltimore is not the place for me. I've mm. pretty much reached my ceiling. I'm not going to grow here too much more. And I'm not going to be a millionaire here. Like the goal is not to be um, a 55K a year executive at a nonprofit. Not to say that's anything wrong with that. That's sure. just not my future. Yeah. I legit have a chance to be a millionaire based off of my own creative merit. Mm-hmm. And I need that for ownership to build out solutions. But um, I'm still here because there's still some groundwork I need to lay mm. so that I can leave and I know the work is still being done by people I trust. Um, I'm getting a super team together now, but yeah, the goal is to actually be really wealthy so I can actually just fund the solution so we can mm. start the Basta Foundations who pretty much uh, perpetuating and for structural racism at every turn. Do you see yourself... Going, coming back, or going, and going wherever you know, whatever. The, do you see yourself like? Do you feel an ownership here? And you don't have to. I'm not. I'm not. Look, I'm not searching for anything. Like, sure. do you feel like? Oh, I need to go to one of these places that it's. It would be easier for me to make money and build a platform for myself with the good work that I'm doing, and then coming back. Or is it? No, I actually want to. There's, you know, there are these structural problems and racism everywhere. I'm going to go tackle it there. Yeah, well, not even about so much about racism, because if we get really deep, racism isn't real, but like we'll just stay on like this physical okay. plane. Um, we'll have another chat about that yeah, some other it's, day. Yeah, it's more or less about quality of life. I'm mm. genuinely not happy here. 
Like okay. my friends know, like whenever I leave town, I go out and I'm sociable and I smile and I take pictures and they're like, this the same CRV? <laughs> when I come here, I don't really go out. I don't really take pictures. I kind of look mean all the time. It's just a quality of life thing really, really for me. But um, it'll be somewhere else to have a home. But again, all the moguls that I look to, they jet set. So it's not like I'm gone and you're just never going to see me. I'm a ghost. Like for, for my work here, I'm still very dedicated to education. I'm going to be back and forwards, but to be who I want to be, my home base can't be here for too much longer, but it's not like now I'm about to leave. I still have time here. People are like, oh my gosh, she's going to leave. I still have time, but yeah, hey, I've been pretty transparent. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Talk to me about this uh, young gifted and strapped uh, art collection. What's, what is, what is that about? What does that mean for you? So Young, Gifted, and Strat was the original name that I titled it when I made it in that same basement, but okay. it debuted as a re-education at School 33 this past uh, November. Um, Young, Gifted, and Black is a song originally by uh, Nina Simone. I chose the Aretha Franklin version. That's my favorite version, but... Uh, my fifth grade graduation from Yorkwood Elementary School, um, we had to sing that song. And when I was in that basement and I literally had that moment I don't want to go into, um, for some reason, like all these childhood memories flooded back mm. and us singing that song. Mm. And for some reason, while I was literally losing my shit, that song just kept playing in my head. And the art kind of came along as well. So I just named it to the Young Gifted in Black, Young Gifted in Strat, and a good strapped is just to have a weapon or something to defend yourself mm. and i felt like in that basement i was developing some type of mechanism to defend myself for whatever was coming next and now that i'm here i completely understand what was happening that makes sense what does the future hold for you i know you've explained some of it but if you could yeah if you could envision like um, i don't know how old you are but you've got a lot of years left hopefully on this earth working and serving people and loving the cities you live in what's kind of the dream um, Generation Dreamers, I'm building that to be like the thing that pulls everything. That's the thing that actually has the potential to be a multi-million dollar brand. So I'm really building that out to be a legit global brand. Well, last time it was just small accounts. Sure. I want this to be, like I said, something like FUBU, where yeah. it's like we're talking about a billion. Yeah. It really can be that. Um, from there, I want to use those earnings to continue to fund philanthropy as well as Baltimore was gifted. And again, just become the VC, just become the foundation where my people don't have to keep going to other people to ask for help. You can just come to me and I'll bank mm. our solution. So it's really just like I'm a beach bum. If I could be, I love the beach. I just would really love to be on the beach with my family and literally just fund whatever we need through my business enterprises. Mm. I love that. I love that. Um, well, I'm super excited about the work that you're doing. Thank you like so much for sharing this with us. I, I always ask this. This is the last question I ask of okay. like all the questions kind of vary for depending on the, the conversations I have. But this one always is dead last. And it's my favorite one to ask because I'm really interested in what you have to say about this. So the okay. last one is a hypothetical question. And um, someday, for some odd reason, in front of your uh, you know, your family, your friends, the people that uh, participate in your clothing brand and all of the companies that you own at that time and all the companies that you funded through your VC thing. At some point, for some reason, I'm giving your eulogy. I am speaking uh, your legacy in front of all the people that love you the most. What do you hope that I would say on that day? What do you hope your legacy is? 
I would hope you would say that I died in complete control and ownership of my mental, emotional, and psychological faculties, and that I inspired other people to be in control of their soul, too. It's a good legacy. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this story and the others that we're going to tell about Baltimore. And I encourage you to continue uh, for the time that you have here to continue loving and serving the people around you through, you're obviously very gifted. Thank you. And um, yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before the third and final conversation today, here's part three of our four-part series with Ruby Cup, who is generously supporting and sponsoring this podcast. Last week, I asked Ruby Cup co-founder Julie, how important is the work Ruby Cup does? You definitely need to go back to last week's podcast to hear her answer. This week, I asked her, how is this helping girls in the developing world? Can you share specific stories? Her answer is fantastic and so helpful. Julie, take it away. Well, I think most important when we uh, work in, in the countries where we work, we don't just go and dump the product and say, here you go, here you have a Ruby cup. The product can't do it alone. Um, the education about the reproductive health, about how periods work is super, super important. So a big part of our work is that when we give our Ruby cups uh, together with our partners, it's always coupled with educational workshops and ongoing support because it takes a while to, how to, uh, to learn how to use a product. I met a girl once in a workshop we had in Kenya that told me that she had had her period for two years without knowing what it was. She was bleeding every month and she thought she was sick. She thought she was dying and she was so grateful that someone came and told her that it was normal and, and you know, a body natural function that she should really appreciate and know how to, to manage. Thanks so much, Julie. Next week, we'll wrap up our four-part series highlighting the incredible work Ruby Cup is doing. Make sure to tune in so you can hear the rest. Now, in my final conversation in this Baltimore episode in partnership with Red Bull Amapico, I talk with the co-founder of Impact Hub, Baltimore, and the CEO of Invested Impact, Rodney Foxworth. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Rodney, a man who lives eats and breathes Baltimore and is committed to her good and her success. So let's get right into it. Okay, Mr. Rodney Foxworth in the house. Thank you for being here, first of all, and for helping set this whole thing up. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm happy to help. I've been talking with two of your friends and colleagues and fellow superhumans here in Baltimore. Uh, being agents of change, so it's been it's been really fun. I mean, I don't know that much about Baltimore, right? Like I've been here a couple of times, mm-hmm. but I've, it's not one of those cities that it, it, I think it's becoming a little more. But it's not a destination, you know. Right. It's like you live here or you're passing through. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm really I, I love meeting new people and experiencing new cultures and people groups. And so this is a this is a real fun at least five or six hours for me. <laughs> That's about the amount of time I'll be here. I went and had lunch at this. Um, Oh gosh, what's the name of it now? It had like comic book. Um, it's like a vegan. Well, they do a lot of vegan vegetarian food. It's like a oh, diner. Lost City Diner. Yes, that one. It was really good. I'm a vegetarian, and so I was looking for wow. you know a vegetarian place, and it was super good food. 
um, friendly people. That was really fun. It's a great spot. It's a great spot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was, I was very pleased um, with uh, everything that I had there. So before we get into um, the, (laughs) I don't even know where to start with the, the work that you're doing and the, we'll get there, all the stuff you've accomplished and the stuff you aim to accomplish in your life. Before we get there though, I want to figure out a little bit uh, about your early life, the kinds of things that shaped you into who you are today, right? Because I, I believe I can directly look back at um, people, uh, specific circumstances, things that happened to me, and I can tie those directly to a lot of the, both yeah, the good, the bad, absolutely. and the ugly of Nick LaPara today, right? And so tell us, tell me, tell us, those that are listening, a little bit about yourself, as little or as much as you want to tell, uh, family, siblings, mm-hmm. the, the environment you grew up in, experiences that shaped you to be the Rodney Foxworth that I'm uh, sitting next to today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a local Baltimorean. Um, Is that what they're called, Baltimoreans? Baltimoreans. I love it. Yeah. So um, I spent most of my adult life, and my entire most of my life here in Baltimore. Um, and it, when I think about it, it's pretty simple in terms of you know how I got shaped into being the person I am today, particularly as it relates to um, working for social justice, working for social change and social impact. Um, I grew up in uh, Northwest Baltimore predominantly. Um, you know, Baltimore is a majority African American city, um, and I grew up in a community that was majority African American, um, working class. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough where both of my parents were working. Um, which is which is a great like thing to witness on a day to day basis mm. um, growing up in a place like Baltimore and you know I'm first generation college student um, my parents didn't go to school but they were very hardworking industrious people that really cared deeply about education and the opportunities that were afforded um, by education. Um, and so I, as my mom told me, though she'll deny this because she's denied it before, but she did tell me this, you know, even though she wasn't in a position to help me financially with school, the expectation was that I was always going to go to college. Mm. Um, and, and I think that was a unique experience uh, in and of itself because, you know, not every one of my peers growing up in a community that I, went, I grew up in um, had similar opportunities. Sure. Um, but it really starts with my parents. Uh, my mother has worked for... Um, the courthouse in Baltimore City for 35 plus years. Oh, wow. Um, working in the criminal justice um, uh, issues. And, you know, I probably had this kind of life changing thing happen to me when I was in middle school. I was about 12, 13 years old. I had become really depressed because I had gone through a series of what we call in Baltimore bankings. Like, I got jumped a lot. Um, you know, and hmm. just wasn't, it just, just got depressed. I was a straight A student. And then for like two years, I was like a C plus student um, after that. As a uh, result of the depression. Yeah, itself. just sort of, you know, and, and maybe even calling depression is probably too much, but just sort of this um, anxiety, I guess, uh, to put it, if I had to put it in words. Sure. Um, and then, you know, what my mom did one day was told me, you know, one, don't travel home after school, come into my office, come to work um, at the courthouse, courthouse. downtown. Uh, in downtown Baltimore, um, and I would just sit outside of her office, and what I recognized was that there's this very long line of African-American males, about the eight, same age as I was then, and the oldest was about how old I am now, and I'm 33 years old. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this is very odd that there's this, this line that's going in to meet the judge, and it's all African-American males, um, and they're all young. Hmm. Um, and I realized 
that what my mom was trying to do was set me up to understand that despite all the things, the challenges I was going through, um, I had so many opportunities mm. and I needed to think much more critically about, you know, the conditions that put people in situations, individuals, particularly African-American uh, men in Baltimore City, where they're going to be in, engaged in and in, interacting with the criminal justice system in ways that other populations of people um, just aren't, hmm. right? Sure. Um, and so my mom was brilliant in that way because she did it very subtly. It wasn't like right. preaching to me. It was just over time yeah. putting me in a position to recognize that. Exactly. Um, and I think between the experiences uh, of growing up in Baltimore City, um, having deep connection to individuals that are impacted by issues like drug addiction and criminal justice issues, poverty, homelessness, um, that I sort of took it upon myself to to do work in areas uh, that really impact people's lives. And originally, I started off as a journalist. I was a freelance writer, wrote for publications uh, in Baltimore, but also up and down in Mid-Atlantic, uh, in the East Coast. And I was very young when I was doing it. I, I wrote about politics. I wrote about you know um, social justice issues. Hmm. Um, and then at some point, I recognized that I really wanted to try to have a, a direct impact or a more direct impact sure. um, on the issues, and I entered into the social sector. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, do you have any siblings? I do. So I have two sisters. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my parents didn't go to college, but probably about, a, at least certainly by next year, my parents will have three kids who have graduated college. My sisters are twins. Crazy. So I have twin sisters. Um, Older, well, younger? They're younger. Much younger. I'm 11 well, years old. Oh, yeah. You just said they, they, they're they about to finish college. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So I'm 11 years older. Um, so I'm sort of like a brother uncle. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like. That's quite the quite the distance there. <laughs> yeah. It's a big difference in age. But, you know, my one sister just graduated college and she studied um, criminology. And so she's really interested in getting into public policy oh, and criminal justice. So... Uh, I guess it's. I guess this is in the blood, or. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I, I, he's not here to talk to her. But do you think that was partly because of the upbringing, or that you guys had, or the things you guys experienced? Even yeah, I think so. She wants I, to kind of imp- get back in there and let's see if we can change some of yeah, this stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, you know, we're, we're remarkably different, but also um, uh, very similar in the ways that we see, um, you know, social injustice and, and, and the issues and the the things that are unfortunately adversely impacting people that look like us <laughs> and yeah. others of course but in a place like baltimore so disproportionate yeah um, um many of the issues of the city and you know you point out that most people don't, don't aren't familiar with baltimore to kind of see it on, in their way to dc or to right, right. Or it's always like you're passing through yeah you're passing through right but i do believe that baltimore i mean and the, the baltimore's changed so much since since i've been around or since i've been alive and in in ways that are both great for the city and also point out the inequity mm. in the city at the same time. Um, and so you'll see a lot of construction and a lot of new things happening. And right. then the question I always ask is how does that affect negatively or positively, you know, individuals that grew up in communities like the ones I grew up in, right? Yeah. Does it have any effect, right? Like does yeah. it have any impact or is it a bad impact? Sure. Um, and so those are the questions that I ask myself. And I think that there's so many opportunities in the city, um, for any for any kind of population of people, right? Uh, whether you're a young professional, um, if you're someone that grows up in a, in a, in a neighborhood that is um, poverty stricken, 
we can have much more resources and opportunities for those folks. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the question is like, how do we, how do we bring more uh, equity and make sure that people are included in all the great stuff that's happening in the city? Um, so it's not just the haves and the have nots are still continuing yep. to um, be excluded. Yeah. Talk for a few minutes about Invested Impact. Mm-hmm. So Invested Impact is an organization that I started about two and a half years ago. Um, I had worked in philanthropy and uh, social entrepreneurship for some time and recognized that one of the big barriers to ensuring that individuals and communities had proper access to uh, resources, um, economic resources in particular, uh, were because decision makers oftentimes, whether deliberately or accidentally, um, did not include folks into the equation. Sure. Um, and so because of my experience working with philanthropy and corporate partners, wealthy individuals, created Invested Impact really as an intermediary um, that could influence and partner with institutions and individuals that had phenomenal access, privilege, power, resources, um, to get them to invest directly into individuals and communities that they had either disinvested in or had never invested in um, and and to do it in more creative ways that actually would unlock the potential of people that already had the potential, but just Mm. were seeking investment, right? Mm. Um, Both financially, social networks, cultural capital, those sort of things. And so we work with all sorts of institutions, um, whether, like I said, either corporate, uh, we work with a lot of um, small family foundations. Um, We work with individuals that have resources that are looking to, uh, for example, fund individuals working in different communities. Uh, We do that work in Baltimore. We do it across the country as well. You also co-founded the building we're sitting in right now, That's Impact right. Hub. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you that are out there listening, you don't know what Impact Hub is, there are, what, 90 sites around at the least, world? There's 90, 100 <laughs> of these Impact Hub communities around the country and the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's a global Yeah, network. it's a global thing. Um, I used to be part of the one briefly in Seattle. Um, so why do that? Because after I ask this question, I'm going to read... I'm going to just mention a few things that you've been involved in, are still involved in. You're very accomplished, right? As as a young as a young dude, so why add on to that co-founding an impact hub, right? So um, I believe that uh, networks are very key to being successful um, if we're going to dismantle challenges of inequity. Um, and you know, initially the question wasn't about building an impact hub necessarily. Hmm. What happened was in about 2012, 2013, um, myself and Press Adams, who's a co-founder and also the director of operations for Impact Hub Baltimore, we visibly recognized that there were so many individuals in Baltimore that were doing phenomenal things, you know, out of their own pocket, you know, got no resources. I mean tape glue kind of things, you know, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that are committed deeply to these issues and were really world class, right? But no one really knew who they were at the time. Sure. And so really we started convening folks that we recognized to be just extraordinary. And it became this thing that over time grew into hundreds of people. Hmm. Um, And so Impact Hub Baltimore didn't initially begin as, oh, we need a space, uh, physical location, a physical space. It initially came from the fact that we recognized that there were individuals throughout Baltimore City that were doing phenomenal things that were world-class leaders um, in their own ways um, that needed resources and needed to be connected to each other hmm. more. And so the concept sort of came together when we were 
interfacing and engaging with this powerful network of people and, and, and space was a need, right? Um, particularly, we don't have many resources. If you can get a low-cost space, um, that would be great. And, and so Impact Hub Baltimore, like a lot of the Impact Hubs, but I'll speak specifically to Impact Hub Baltimore, is more than a physical space. It's more than a four walls. It's it's a platform for individuals yeah. doing remarkable things, right? And, and so it's, yes, you can get office space, but it's really about connecting to individuals that are working on similar issues or might be look, working on different things. Um, and so what we see, what I always thought of Impact Hub uh, Baltimore as an opportunity to catalyze a network of people, to give people that normally wouldn't intersect and cross-sect um, an opportunity to do so. So... I think that, you know, I've been privileged to be a part of so many opportunities for making change in the city. Um, and Impact Hub has been a very visible example of it, right? I mean, people can literally walk into the doors, right? Um, I think it's been a great opportunity for people to see people doing great work, mm. <laughs> to make it more visible, to make it easier for people to get connected to resources. Yeah, no, that, that makes huge sense. Um, I'm not going to list some things. What, I'm gonna, what I want to yeah. do is I want you to mention because I want the things that come to your mind. What are some of the important teams you're on, things you're a part of, things you've been featured in, boards that you're on? Because, and then I have a one word question that I'm gonna ask yep. after you mention some of those, because you know a lot of people listening, with Let's Give a Damn, essentially I'm trying to do a lot of things, but one of the main ones is take away the excuses that people come mm, up with mm-hmm, for not giving mm-hmm, a damn, mm-hmm. right? Because they can come up with so many. Yeah. Right. Uh, best of intentions, go into the day or go into the new year saying, you know, I'm going to be an agent of change. I'm going to do mm-hmm. this or that. I'm going to answer the call that's in my heart. And then uh, by, you know, the, by this time, the next week, there's still binge watching the shows that's that are right. out on Netflix right. and not not moving mm-hmm. on those those calls that they feel in their life. And so what are those important things in your life that you're a part of? Because it's not just one job that you have. <laughs> uh, it's a long list of things that you're involved in. So mention the important ones. And then we'll go from there. Yeah, so I'll name a couple. I'll, I'll name three, Okay. I think. Um, so one, uh, I sit on the board, I actually co-chair um, an organization called Thread, um, okay. which is an organization that works with the lowest performing high school students currently in three high schools in Baltimore City. It begins in their freshman year after they've uh, ended their first semester. And the average GPA for these students is below 1.0. Uh, as oh, they wow. enter. Yeah. Even though Thread is in, in three high schools, because of the the transient nature of Baltimore City Public Schools, I believe the students uh, are now like across 17 high schools, right? Um, because they move on to another high school. When you look at the data, the population of students that Thread works with, you know, anywhere between only six and 10% of them are gonna graduate from high school mm-hmm. on average. However, the comparable students that are in Thread are graduating at 95%, right, from high school. And so that's pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, and so that that organization is led by a phenomenal social entrepreneur that I've respected for some time, Sarah Heminger, who's an Ashoka fellow, an Echoing Green fellow. So she's been recognized globally as a phenomenal social entrepreneur. And um, they do world class work. And, and, and the organization has grown significantly since I've been on the board, um, which mm. has been great. So that's one thing uh, that I think is, is, is it needs to be pointed out. And it's also a great thing for Baltimore. Sure. Right? You know, the issues of inequity as it relates to particularly African-American populations um, is why I'm going to talk about these, these next two. One is an initiative that I, I helped to form, you know, two, two or three years ago, um, bring it to, brought it to Baltimore called BME, which stands for Black Male Engagement. Hmm. Um, they're, they're, it's, it's really a network of African-American men who are 
committed to social change and have been doing social change work in their any kind of capacity. Some are business owners who hire uh, men and women from the community that have hard time getting have a hard time getting jobs. You know, some are doing mentoring. You know, it's a remarkable uh, network. And what's really important about it is that when you look at it, many of these cities that have large populations of African Americans are seen as sort of downtrodden. Um, they're seen as places where opportunity can't exist. And, and, and quite frankly, African-American men are seen as problems that need to be solved. And so BME is all about changing that narrative and recognizing that, wow, there's this Detroit, Baltimore, Philly. These these cities have remarkable leaders um, that are African-American men, and we need to spotlight them, uplift them, mm. connect them, give them resources. And so that network is actually just restarting again in Baltimore, but it's in, in several cities across the country, um, Akron, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Philadelphia, Miami. Hmm. Uh, so it's a great network. I'd encourage people to look into it. Um, and then uh, bringing it back closer to home um, is, a, uh, is Elevation Awards, uh, which is run through uh, Baltimore Corps, one of our partners, which is another phenomenal organization. But the Elevation Awards, what it does is it gives people, particularly in West Baltimore, who have an idea for making change in their sure. community that could scale potentially, that could have outsized impact. It gives them opportunity to incubate that idea from just an idea into executing that idea, right? Um, and so that program has been around for about 18 months. Um, and just uh, last week, in fact, there was a showcase of the 10 Elevation Award winners here in Baltimore. Um, oh, no way. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal because you've got folks that are some really interesting things. You know, um, Brittany Young, uh, who, who is from Baltimore and created an organization called B360, which uses um, sort of dirt bikes as a way to engage individuals and uh, young people um, in, in STEM education. Right. So, hmm. you know, what she recognized was, you know, a lot of folks will see this 13 year old African-American boy is like he's dirt biking, you know, must be reckless, must not have any kind of skills. But what she's saying was, wow, no, actually, this guy has a lot of skills that can be applied in the STEM. Um, and so she's she herself. I mean, she's worked at NASA. She's an educator. Oh, wow. You know, she's not even 30 years old. And she came up with this gracious. concept and is doing this great work. So those are kind of folks that are involved in Elevation Awards. Um, and again, just another platform for people to see that Baltimore has phenomenal people. If you who are listening want to read the rest of the stuff that he's involved in, uh, go to his website, Invested Impact, go to Meet the Team. There's a lot more. He only mentioned three. Why do you give a damn in these ways? What's the driver? You know, I think it, I think it's hard for me. It's hard not to give a damn. It's mm. always a problem. Is a kind of I, mean, I was talking to a friend just the other day, and and, and she said, Rodney, you got to learn how to say no sometimes, right? Because there's so many opportunities yeah. and challenges, and, and many of those challenges can become opportunities. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I care because, to be frank, it, 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 on any given day, I could be impacted by any issues that I'm working on. Mm. Right. I mean, um, and I think we all need to understand that when we're doing something that's considered charitable or social impact or social justice, however you want to frame it, that you need to really look at it from the perspective that we're all impacted, mm. <laughs> right? All of this stuff impacts us, yeah. right? So we look at Baltimore and let's take criminal justice issues um, where so many African-American men between the ages of 25 and 54, which is a prime age, are taken out of, uh, out of communities by the criminal justice system. And mm. that robs the city itself yeah. of talent, ingenuity, resources. Broken families now. Broken families. Yeah. It's costly. We spend $289 million a year, the state of Maryland does, to incarcerate uh, individuals from Baltimore. So you're talking about almost $300 million that could go into something else. Have you seen 13th? 
I have, yeah. Man, twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I pr- it's, I'm due for it again. I watched the first time on a plane and just wept. I had, I had, I mean, I was sitting there on the plane crying like a, like a baby and like knots in my stomach. It just felt so wrong. I mean, it was well done. I love the, the transparency and how they, how they made it so well, but it just felt so wrong. It is wrong, and it's 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 not just a moral challenge. It's also, I mean, I, if you can't understand why it's a moral challenge, then you got you've got right. some soul searching yeah, to do. We, yeah, we need to have a conversation <laughs> about some other things. Yeah, talk about some other things, but it's also an economic issue. I mean, again, three hundred million dollars, nearly three hundred million dollars. That could be going uh, to could be sco- schools, anything. entrepreneurship, a range of things, and so that's what motivates me to keep mm. on doing it. And you know, I believe that. Um, you know, I have some skills to bring to the table, but I also think that there's so many others, and there are people. Sure. I mean, Baltimore is full of some of the very best, uh, most visionary, committed leaders. I mean, you had an opportunity to speak to two of them um, before we had this yeah. conversation. I mean, I respect David and, and C so much, um, and, and you know, they're, they're from Baltimore. They intimately understand the opportunities here and and, and the hard work that has to be put in um, to really try to to shift the trajectory of the city, which has for too long, probably since inception, actually historically since inception, has um, excluded so many people. Mm. So why Baltimore, mm-hmm. right? I think I met you two hours ago, but meeting you and looking at your the things that you've done, and I'm, I'm kind of being devil's advocate here because yeah. I don't really mean it, but why not get the hell out of here and go to New York or LA or a city where you're gifts could be used at a bigger level. You'd obviously be recognized in different ways. You could have a greater, and you understand what I'm saying when I say this, you could have a bigger impact because of just the nature of those cities, right? So why not do that? Why stay here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think it all depends on how you how you um, frame or consider what a bigger impact is because yeah, there you go. I, I think in a place like Baltimore, which has about 625,000 people, it's not small. No, it's no, not no, small totally, city, right? yeah. It's not a small city. Baltimore lacks many of the resources financially that many of the cities that you named out uh, have, L.A., New York, um, for example. There's great resources in human capital, the people here. Mm. And I do believe that if you can get something, if you can prove something and change something in Baltimore that is a social justice issue, you can do it anywhere because of the historical context of the city, um, the wealth discrepancies, plus on top of that, the lack of wealth. If you can do it in Baltimore, you can do it anywhere, I think. Um, and I hate to put it this way, but Baltimore really is a great testing place mm. in terms of those who are already doing the work here, um, mm. demonstrating that, hey, if there's a challenge in Chicago and we've solved it in Baltimore, we can import that. Yeah. Right? David um, said the same thing, and it makes total yeah. sense. It yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, I'm a Baltimore guy, uh, yeah. so I love the city. Um, and I think I'm just personally uh, possessed to to make sure that – you know, um, as my sister comes back into the city mm. and, you know, family and, and all these sort of things that the, the city is in a better place uh, than it was before. And, and you know, whether I'm a big believer that we can make a lot of progress, um, but we just need more people. We need more resources. Uh, and we quite frankly, we need to make sure that we're uplifting people like David and C. I see my role very much as one that is behind the scenes mm. um, because I don't consider myself a visionary or, or um, you know, someone like C or, or David, I'm the person that that helps the helpers. Mm. <laughs> I'm the one that helps organize the resources to make sure that they're able to do what they need to do, yeah. um, that they're resourced in ways that are um, helpful to them. Well, that self-awareness is probably 
part of the reason that you've been so successful, yeah. right? Because I think you could ease you could easily with the things that you've encountered and the people and the organization, you could easily say, "No, I am that vision," or try to fill that role, mm-hmm. and then it's just gonna. It's, it's not going to be the real you yep. and it's not going to be the full you. Yep. And so, yeah, that's great self-awareness there. Just being the impetus behind, you know, letting people like helping, helping and letting people like David and C do what they do better. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that uh, Baltimore and places like it probably, I mean, certainly Baltimore is not, um, you know, is not short on ideas nor sure. is it short on leaders. Um, it, it needs greater resourcing. Yeah. Right? Like people like David and C just need more resources in all different kind of ways. And we need to provide resources to them in the ways that they need it and, and ask for it. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, and, and from that perspective, it, it does allow afford me the privilege to be able to see how to connect different pieces of the yeah. work. Right. Um, and so I, I enjoy it. Um, it's frustrating, <laughs> but it's, it's the frustration that's born from the motivation to make sure that we make a progress on these, on these yeah. issues. Yeah. The reason we're here today is because of our, our friends and the folks at uh, Red Bull and Mapico. Mm-hmm. What is your relationship with them? How do you see the work that they're doing uh, as beneficial and impactful for the city of Baltimore? Yeah, so I think, uh, look, so Red Bull is, uh, is doing something phenomenal. And what's interesting is that they really started doing the lead work far in advance of what many people out who are listening to your the podcast, the 2015 unrest that happened in the city. You know, Red Bull actually started working on Amapico um, Academy uh, for Baltimore several months in advance. Hmm. Um, and I think that's something that needs to be announced because there are a lot of different partners, corporate entities, a lot of different um, resource holders that became interested in Baltimore post unrest. Yeah, of course. Right? Um, a little publicity and publicity. it makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. Right. And look, we need all the resources totally. that we can get. Right. Um, so I'm not, I'm not um, uh, denouncing any of that, but it's to suggest that Red Bull noticed something about Baltimore um, well before that. Mm. Um, and the team had spent months before uh, the unrest getting to know leaders in Baltimore City, on the ground leaders um, that were doing phenomenal things and they were convinced that Baltimore is in fact a destination mm. for social change. Mm. Um, and and so I, I've always appreciated that uh, and the amount of time that Red Bull has spent really engaging the community. Um, as someone who works a lot with corporate partners, I think it, you know the way they've engaged the city um, you know, at a, at, a, at a steady pace, right? Not too quickly, but sure. not slow, not slowly either, um, to really get an authentic appreciation of what's going on in the city. You know, it's really a good roadmap for how other corporate partners can can uh, work in the city. And what I'm hoping for, and what I what I believe to be what will happen, is the Amapico Academy, which is a social entrepreneur academy, and there's been ten days in Baltimore City. Um, Red Bull has elected to to work with UB Blake Cultural Arts Center, um, which is a a, a cultural space um, owned and run by African Americans, um, as sort of the destination and convening place for the the awardees of mm. the Amapico Academy um, that are coming from all across the country, but many of them from Baltimore as well. And so, th- what I'm looking forward to is the opportunity for community leaders and social entrepreneurs from Baltimore that have been doing thankless work <laughs> in many ways will get the national and local attention that they deserve. Sure. And because the program is going to follow with about 18 months 
of a digital program and mentoring and, and resource connection, we'll be able to demonstrate that Baltimore has some of the most outstanding leaders in the country, which I actually have believed for some time at this point, which is another reason why I continue to be here. Yeah. Um, because there's some of the best social entrepreneurs and community leaders that you can find are right here in Baltimore. And so I'm looking forward to the muscle that Red Bull can put in terms of marketing and promoting these individuals and connecting um, Baltimore leaders to the resources that they that they have long needed. Love it. Love it. As we wrap up, I'm going to paint a hypothetical scenario. Mm -hmm. The hypothetical scenario is that someday, for some odd reason, I'm going to, on the day that you uh, pass away, which hopefully is many, many years from now. I hope so. Thanks. In front of of, uh, your family, your friends, all the people you've impacted, and all the organizations you've worked with, they're all there. They're all there to honor Mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm. And I get to give your eulogy. What do you hope that I'll say? What legacy do you hope that I'm going to speak over these people that are there honoring your life yeah it's it's interesting because uh i'm only 33 and i feel like people have already started asking a lot about what my legacy what i want my legacy to be um which which is pretty heady i haven't thought about i try not to think about it right um but i'm simple uh in a sense that you know my favorite writer of all time is james baldwin Mm. and um the Fire Next Time was a book I read. I was about 12 or 13 years old. It was the first book that I read that I felt was um, written for me. Hmm. Um, and it, there's a line in, in, in The Fire Next Time in which he's writing to his nephew. And he says, James Baldwin says, he just wants to be a good writer and an honest man. Hmm. Right? That's what he wants to be remembered for. That's it. And in many ways, that's what I want to be remembered for. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be cons- I want to be remembered. My legacy is that I would love for people to remember me as someone who, you know, made mistakes, but uh, consistently tried to be the very best advocate um, for people like C, like people like David, as he possibly could be. Mm-hmm. And that I was someone that was committed and honest in terms of the sense of, you know, how do we do this work with integrity? How do we do it uh, honestly and transparently? Mm. Um, and so that's all I ask. Uh, I just want people to think of me as someone that tried their best and woke up every day, um, thinking about and working towards, you know, resourcing people that have given so much of their lives and um, sacrificed so much to make mm. Baltimore um, in other communities um, positive places for everyone. I have super high hopes for Baltimore because of the three people I've met today. I mean that. Um, I'm really excited about the work you guys are doing. And I know that you're three of a thousand, you know, like there's more people. Oh, here. Yeah. You know, there's so, so many, many and I wish I could talk with them all. Let's quickly mention your shirt. Is, <laughs> yeah. is whiskey is whiskey really your spirit animal? It is. So I'm a, I'm big, a whiskey guy. Yeah, I'm like, a big whiskey guy. And so I just had a birthday about two weeks ago. And one of my requirements was that everyone bring me a bourbon, yeah. rye, or scotch. Mm. And I collected uh, 22, 22 new bottles. Uh, which is pretty exciting. You have some good friends. I, I do. I was we, hoping to get 33. We did. <laughs> yeah, that would have been nice. One for each year. We did that with one of my friends too. And it was the best because everybody, no gifts, you know, who needs, I don't, yeah. I don't need yeah. gifts. Like yeah. just everybody bring a bottle. We'll enjoy mm-hmm. it. Did they enjoy, did you like, open them there or you no, got yeah. them all? So they all brought up, right. you know, and, and drank, 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 drank. And what I, you know, over. what I did was to be frank, I, 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 I opened up the things that evening that I felt were more consumable for everyone. Sure, right. That's <laughs> and fine. I, and, I, and I surrogated things that I, I needed for myself. Yeah, there you go. That's all, that's yeah. all good, bro. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I yeah. love that. Well, thank you so much for, A, setting this up and helping set this up and also, B, yeah, thank you for you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I and I hope it. to, uh, let's keep in touch. 
I just want I want to keep now I have a little like Baltimore bug I want to keep in touch and just see um, how things progress and how things work out awesome thanks man thanks. I appreciate it That was so much fun. I know this was a long one, but great conversations, great change makers. I hope you have been encouraged and challenged. So thank you for joining me. Check out the show notes by visiting letsgiveadam.com for more information on our guest this week. And I know this is a big ask, but it would help us out a ton if you would subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get into the ears and lives of many more listeners. Last week, I started highlighting some reviews left on Apple Podcasts, and I want to continue doing that today. Today's review is from The Piano Guy Ben. He says, we need more world changers. Too many people just complain about how terrible the world is or how terrible people are or how terrible things might be and then sit back and wait for things to change. They don't look for ways to change it themselves or get involved. This podcast is a much needed breath of fresh air that highlights people out there who care enough to change the world themselves and get people involved. I aspire to be like these people and I think you should too. Take a listen. Seriously, do it. The Piano Guy Ben, thank you so much for those kind words and we agree. We think people should listen and we hope that inspiration will come from listening and that the listening and the inspiration will turn into doing. Lastly, make sure to support our wonderful sponsors, Scout Books and Ruby Cup. They're both doing great work. I love them both. And it would mean the world to me if you go let them know on social media and check out all they're doing to make the world a much better place. That's it for this week. I cannot wait to spend time with you next week. So much love to you and yours. Bye for now. <laughs>